my god, welcome to Unforcing Required Reading, where I hit the record button too slow and cut out the best joke that we could have possibly made. Uh, hi. Hi. <laughs> uh, Life goes on. <laughs> it's February, happy Black History Month. Um, and Valentine's Day was this week? Yes? This week, yeah, it was Wednesday. Time is in... <laughs> I don't know what uh, so, I am excited to be back. Hello, Victoria. Hi. <laughs> uh, we are reading. Uh, do you want to tell the audience at home what we're reading today? We are reading Lady Chatterley's Lover, and I have entitled this episode, I Bet on Losing Dogs, because I listened to Mitski, which is not a surprise for anybody who listens to this podcast or has for more than five minutes. <laughs> I also listened to a little bit of Mitski. Um, we're educated, depressed women. We, we yeah. do. Um, I'm currently drinking rosé out of my Life is Relentless mug that has a crab smoking a cigarette, which is just me. A crab smoking a cigarette that says Life is Relentless. I always think of that picture of Ben Affleck smoking the cigarette with the facial expression like Jesus Christ. The, yeah. the exhausted Ben Affleck pictures are truly the greatest gift he has given the world because it is all of us. Literally. Um, I'd like to propose a new segment of the show uh, in which, Tori, what is the most unhinged thing I sent you this week? God, okay, give me a minute. Because <laughs> <clears throat> I think I know what it is. I know we were talking about how a meltdown as a treat being our big thing. Yes. I mean, you did send me a raven eating a whole thing of french fries. Yes. My favorite, though, was the, do I have permission for some cryptid activity? Yes. I'd like to eat sweet pickles while basking in the pale light of my fridge's fluorescent bulb. And I said, do it. I support your cryptid dreams. My God, thank you for letting me be a cryptid. To which I got my favorite thing of the week. I just imagined it being like I was a child with divorced parents and being like, well, Tori lets me eat pickles in the dark and be a fucking cryptid. That's what I was hoping would win. Out of all, out of, all of the cryptid things that I've sent. And mind you, I sent this message at 10.14 p.m. So what's even better about that is at 10 o'clock, my phone goes, um, like, what is it? Do, do not, not disturb. disturb. Yes. It's done. Doesn't send me any messages or anything like that. Nothing lights up. Nothing vibrates. Mm -hmm. So that means I have to actively be on my phone if I'm looking at messages. Yes. And I was there going, is this a cry for help? No, it's just a cry for pickles. It's like, no, not a cry for help this time. Just a desire to be a little bit of a cryptid. Uh, but it is a... I was going to say it's a beautiful day. It's literally cold and dark outside. <laughs> Which I mean for us is a beautiful day, but yeah, for, for us goths, it's a beautiful day. Uh, as far as what we're eating and drinking today, uh, apparently our author was a bit of a wino. So I have the aforementioned rosé in a mug because it has been one of those weeks. <laughs> I'm having diet Coke because I threw up earlier. Thumbs <laughs> up. Anyway. <clears throat> oh my God. Uh, we are all doing our best here. <laughs> this has been the longest February in human history. Uh, I feel like I should be like, this is for medical reasons. It's not because of drinking. 
I love the idea of like having to quantify what's wrong with us. Well, because our podcast is like we drink and we talk about stuff, and then all of a sudden it was like Tori needs to limit her drinking because of medication. Yeah, I do feel like if you don't have that context of us, it's like these women are alcoholics, and it's like no, we're not. We have other issues. Oh, but I am so excited to read this book. Uh, I hyped it up a little bit in our last episode because there is a lot of controversy with this uh, particular title. So would you like to short story long? It is actually not that long. I am very proud of you. Oh. Are you proud? Are you proud? I'm very proud. I'm proud. <clears throat> Which is funny because this book is actually fairly long. But uh, so we're introduced to Connie Reed, who is a woman raised in the upper middle class and introduced to both the intellectual and sexy affair concepts as a teen. So she is no stranger to love. Mm. He knows the rules and so do I. Anyway, uh, in 1917, she marries a guy named Clifford Chatterley and he's the head of a very wealthy family line, big property. They go on a honeymoon for an entire month. They get down, they have a good time. And then he gets sent off to World War I and is paralyzed from the waist down and impotent because of it. So mm -hmm. I originally was gonna title this episode, everything you wanna know about this book is covered on Downton Abbey. But anyway, moving on. Um, Clifford becomes a well-known writer because he's got money and a lot of smart friends. So smart people spend a lot of time at their mansion, um, which is called Ragby, not with the W. I don't know where the W came from. Um, <coughs> Connie is lonely and mm. she finds intellectuals kind of pathetic. She's like, this is boring as fuck. Can we do something fun? So she ends up having a super dissatisfying affair with a playwright named Michaelis, who we, we we're gonna we're gonna talk shit about because everybody else talks shit about um she and he have this affair that makes me just feel like girl could do better the entire time because mm -hmm. like she has to find ways to keep him hard so she can get off and like that's expressly put in the book and every time he has an orgasm they call it a crisis which every time they said there was a crisis i just started cracking up i'm like oh, god. oh god um so connie was like oh yay legit human contact and then michaelis sucks and she falls into despair and thinks all men are scared of true feelings and passion and i noted r.i.p connie you would have loved tiktok lesbians um yes. connie and clifford grow apart clifford spends most of his time with his writing and coal mining because they have a bunch of coal mines uh, Connie is not into hearing about coal mining at all. It's boring. She doesn't really give a shit. Uh, Mrs. Bolton, who is a woman who has lost her husband, so I guess a widow, um, she's a nurse, is hired to help Clifford so Connie can do things other than constantly care for his ass. Uh, yes. Clifford starts to develop a dependence on the nurse and acts like a fucking child, which is creepy. Um, of course, he and the nurse are banging. Interestingly, well, for whatever you can as far as banging. She's touching him and he's touching her. But, you know, can't really do a whole lot. Interestingly enough, <laughs> they go for a walk one day and Clifford is like, you know what? You should totally fuck someone else and get pregnant so we can raise a kid together. And she's like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> and he's like, it'd be fine. You know, I just, I just say it was my kid. And she's like, question mark? So 
There's a guy named Oliver Mullers. He's hired as a gamekeeper for the property. He's recently out of the military, and he intentionally just wants to be away from everybody. Um, a lot of this is because he just he got out of a very, very shitty marriage mm-hmm. um, that was not great on him or his kid. So his kid lives with his mom, who's nearby, and like he's just like, fuck it. I'm just going to do a job and be left alone. So Connie is, of course, drawn to what she sees as a real man. Um, they meet up accidentally several times, and Mellers tells her, hey, um, you're really great, and I think you're beautiful, but we can't be together. Class distance is a real fucking thing, and this mm-hmm. is going to ruin your life. And she's like, no. So they eventually meet at a hut in the forest, which is where they keep the chickens, and they bang their little hearts out. Um, this keeps happening, often. Connie feels this sense of emotional separation despite the fact that they're physically together and then once they meet up and have sex on the forest floor and achieve simultaneous orgasms which makes her suddenly feel like she is actually connected to him and the world and that they're all together oh no i've had a simultaneous orgasm before it is not that big of a fucking deal connie but anyway um so she adores him it's like we relate on a physical and sensual level and meanwhile he's like do you want tea uh she's super happy because she thinks she's pregnant with his child and is just like i have this mental and physical connection it's amazing um a bunch of shit goes down and connie just is like i need to get out of here um she tells her husband because he's still harping about like hey we should have a baby go to venice and and fuck somebody and she's like okay But she already thinks she's pregnant, so that's part of it. And her sister is, like, helping her go to Venice, but also helps her, like, meet up with Mellors in the woods before she leaves. And she's like, this is fucking stupid. This guy is a waste of space. What the fuck is wrong with you? Um, So Connie goes to Venice on vacation. She's kind of living it up. Uh, She's all proud of herself. And uh, Mellors' old wife shows up and while she's gone and causes a scandal and basically gets him fired. Um, Because of all these rumors from his ex. She's saying like Mm -hmm. all these things. And um, again, Downton Abbey. Um, Mellor starts divorce proceedings. But in order to do that, he and Connie have to be apart. Because if there's any whiff of a scandal, it could cause problems. Connie tells Clifford she is pregnant with with Mellor's baby. And Clifford is like, I'm not giving you a divorce. She's like, "I, I want a divorce. And he's like, I'm not giving you one. Um, Mellors ends up working for a farm somewhere else. At the end, he's still waiting for his divorce to come through. Connie is living with her sister, and they will hope that they end up together, possibly in Canada. Ah, yes, that lawless land, Canada, that will accept, uh, such fugitive rogues. Uh, so, this book caused so much fucking controversy. (laughs) You know what's great about this, though? This yes. is, like, the mildest shit that you would read on Kindle Unlimited. <laughs> yeah, and I think, like, that's one of the reasons why I think it's so important to talk about, especially, like, books like this in a modern context, is because, again, it goes back to that, like, framing of when we were reading. I mean, I never had to read this in school. Spoiler. We would never have read this in school. Uh, I live in Texas. But... Like, in college, you would, but not... Yeah, not well, it, I, I mean, I never read this in college. I mean, I think... Christabel was the most no we read Equus in college that's probably the most fucked up book we read but 
you know, this is, you know, sexual and there was an obscenity trial and this book was censored heavily for decades. And then like, you know, Tori and I as modern smut readers and smut writers are like, this is nothing. And I like, was, the most exciting thing you did was call your dick John Thomas and her vagina Lady Jane. Well, they used the, they said cunt and fuck. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that was a big deal. <laughs> now, now we're like, the Australians and the Scots are like, wait, what's wrong with any of these words? I don't understand. <laughs> to be fair, the C word does still like hit my ear very dissonantly. Like, if I if I can hear it spoken by someone who I know is from Australia or Scotland, okay, that's fine. I understand. But like if I'm reading it like in a fic or something, it's like it's just the most abrupt hard stop, like baseball bat to the back of the head word. And it's just like, huh, okay. I mean, I guess so, I appreciate it more than some of the flowery language that some writers use. Oh my god, her lady garden is one of my favorite ones. It makes me laugh. So if you're, I don't know if any, I just started watching it last night, that feud, uh, Capote versus the Swans, because y'all knew I was going to watch part of it at least. They That's use good. the C word in it. And I was like, do. well, um, also, I did not realize that was Tom Hollander because my brain still hasn't pictured walking down the balcony in Pirates of the Caribbean as everything blows up. And I was like, I know this guy. I know this guy from somewhere. What is happening? And all of a sudden I'm like, oh my God, that's Tom Hollander. And I look, look at Mark and I go, okay, I need you to picture the East India Company and a ship blowing up. And he's like, wait a minute. And then um, somebody, Toby, I can't think of his first name. Um, he's a sweetheart. He's in a lot of British stuff. He's in it. And I'm like, I remember you from being human way back in the day. Oh anyway, God, it's, really, it's really good. It's got a bunch of like older actresses that like... Ooh. Stunning. It's got like Callista Flockhart and stuff and Courtney Cox and Calista a bunch Flockhart's of people that you back? Yeah. Like there's a bunch of people that you haven't seen in a hot minute. And I'm like, I love every single one of you. Um, I'm only on episode two, so I'll be honest about that. Moving back to DH Uh I mm. have been stuck in has been hotel hell. So I love has been hotel. I hate it. You hate it? I hate it. I think I hate it. I'm sorry. Oh, did you ruin it? Keith, Keith, David, calling somebody a power bottom that's hit rock bottom is just. I'm sorry. I, I love Keith, David, and anything though. I mean, that's an unfair metric. That is. That's true. That is not. That's that's cheating. It's like everyone's like, I love Keith, David's singing voice. It's like, really, really. Yeah, you were all on his side in Princess and the Frog. Like. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things to read is like, oh my gosh, Alex Brightman's such a good singer. Like, the guy who's been in musicals? Really? Oh my gosh. So many people in that show, though, have won Tonys. Mm -hmm. And I'm like... Yeah, it's sad that Viz apparently had to... Wicked poster and go, Ariana, what are you doing? Oh my god. <laughs> Anyways, so this book caused a lot of scandal and controversy for being so sexually open for use of the word fuck liberally, for use of the word cunt liberally, um, and just for being like overall salacious despite being released in the early 1900s. I mean, we're talking like Oscar Wilde level obscenity charges and such. Uh, and the problem is, is that when you read this today, 
there's fan fiction on AO3 for free that is 50 times harder than this. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you frame it as just, oh, this was considered pornography, it was obscene, you have to contextualize it in the way of the time. And I think that's one thing that a lot of English teachers aren't good at doing. Because I mentioned this like with Shakespeare and stuff, where it's like, oh, Shakespeare's hilarious. And I was like, yeah, he's hilarious to us nerds. But if it's like 2000 and whatever, and I'm and you say Shakespeare is hilarious, I'm expecting it to be like Dane Cook. And Shakespeare is not Dane Cook. I'm sorry. Yes. Your reference was Dane Cook? Everyone in the early 2000s thought he was funny, unfortunately. In the early 2000s. Yes, which is why I prefaced that. Not now. <laughs> not, not, not currently. I don't know what comedian I would use now. I guess, like, no, I wouldn't use Matt Reif. He is not funny or handsome. Uh, I told you that I walked right by uh, Dane Cook on the Fox lot once, right? No, or you never told oh, me this. Okay, so I was there for screening, and I start walking with my friend, and we look over, and this guy looks really angry and really roided out, and he's with, like, a PR person. That and they're right. walking, and I look over, and I'm like... My brain does the calculations. We walk by, goes that fucking Dane Cook. My friend's like, yeah. And I'm like, backing away. <laughs> yeah, he's, oh man, we're not going to talk about Dane Cook. So we have some themes, not that many themes, considering that this is a rather slender book. Uh, and the first big one is that mind and body connection which seems very appropriate for February. Basically, you know, that the body on its own is, you know, uncivilized and it needs the brain for higher thought and self-actualization, but the brain on its own is kind of useless. And listen, we're all just piloting a bunch of meat mechs and no one has time for this. Yeah, it's, the, it's that concept of a higher self in a carnal mm. form yes, um, that you see in a lot of religions um, yes. where a lot of times the body is, I want to say denigrated, but I don't know if that's the right word. It is. No, it it's, is, it's a word. It's treated as like lesser than, mm -hmm. and in a lot of, of areas of thought, it's like, you know, you want to improve your mind. Your mind is the most important thing, but at the same time, your mind will literally die if your body dies. So, I mean, we legitimately don't know what happens to the concept of consciousness after we die. There are a lot of schools of thought on that. There are entire religions based on that. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's one religion in Asia where they believe that hell is just a series of bureaucrats that you have to go to each of their lines for eternity while they perpetually give you more paperwork. This is true. Um, I call it, that the United States government. That's literally Kafka-esque. Hey. hey. Uh, but yeah, that's true for a lot of religions. I mean, we see that like in Zoroastrianism where, you know, everything is this great flame and there's cleansing fire and it's needing to rid the body of its dirty flesh prison uh, to, un to unleash the mind, that the mind is this savior of reason and justice and the thing is is that exactly it's all of this stuff that is really rooted in like a severe fear of death that's like 
well, what do we do once the body is gone? Um, there is a great book that I'm pretty sure that I now have on um, Audible. I do. So it's Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher. And it's about this guy who was doing research like at the Pope's behest of cutting monkeys' heads off and trying to transplant them, transplant them on other monkey bodies because the, the church was trying to prove the existence of the soul. And the and the doctor was very Catholic as well. So fun story about that: the CIA used to do tests like that. Yes. Thanks, MK Ultra. Yeah. So, Mister Humble and Doctor Butcher, I've talked about this doctor because uh, he was also on Monster Quest, which is the best show. <laughs> which is the best show and my favorite show of all time. But this idea that like, oh, you know, we can capture the essence of the soul. There was another doctor uh, who was obsessed with bringing um, animals back from the dead, including his favorite dog, which he named Lazarus too. Um, and another American physician that had surmised that the soul weighed like 34 grams. Like he weighed a body like right after death. And it was like whatever grams lighter. And it's like, that's how much the soul weighs. And it's like, Okay, sir. Well, also, you got to realize that most of the time, unless the person has just gone to the bathroom, they also immediately shit after death. When everything kind of lets go, your body yeah. immediately starts to break down. Like, the bacteria in your gut goes, hey, it's party time. Um but I, th I think a lot of, of this book, too, is we see that weird kind of connection. We see Connie mm -hmm. have a physical relationship with um, whatever Michaelis, who just seems like a waste of time. But we all had that phase in our 20s. Um, and then 20s. she has an intellectual relationship with Clifford. And mm -hmm. it's like really frustrating because she's like, I just want these two in one body. And right. she doesn't get that until she gets Mellers. And then it's like, oh, okay. I see this now. Um, so you have that as well with the mind versus body. Mm -hmm. Isn't that like the entire plot of that movie, Lisa Frankenstein, where it's like, I want to build the perfect man? I don't know. I haven't seen it, but I want to. Yeah, like that's literally the entire plot of Lisa Frankenstein. is like, I want to lose my virginity, but I'm going to like build the perfect man, which... Thank you for finally reading sex into that story because whenever you say there's a queer reading of Frankenstein, people are like, no, Victor was just trying to be a scientist. And it's like, why'd he build a giant dude? Have you ever given scientists money, free reign, and no rules? <laughs> just That's saying. The OFS department. Yeah, I was like, just saying. Oh. He didn't he didn't have to build himself a giant dude. That's how that we get bad bombs and a giant dude. Yeah. <laughs> so you brought up something. Uh, I was mentioning having to explain an idea, like quantify it on a portfolio tutorial earlier. And I mentioned, so I took the AP exams when I was in high school, because of course I did. And I took the AP psych exam and we had to explain like operant conditioning and I was so burned out at that point. I just drew a pigeon in a box to describe a Skinner box. And I still passed that exam. I just drew a bird in a box. And they were like, close enough. My brain's like, I'm a bird in a box. <laughs> but 
yeah, there is this idea of like, oh, if I could, if I could make a chimera of these two men and they'd be perfect. Um, I feel like a lot of, especially women or those assigned female at birth do that because love in Western society is taught to us as a systemic breaking down of what your um, wishes are. Like now that I'm in like my mid thirties, everyone's like, you're just gonna have to settle. Yeah, I know Tori, thank you. But like- As I make the face. Yeah. Okay, but, my female a bunch of my female friends are getting divorced right now and I am living for it, which is, it sounds horrible, but I will say these are abusive relationships. Yes. Um, in both cases, more mental than physical. Mm -hmm. um, but it was both those times where you're like, these men are unhinged. We, we teach from a very early age, and this is very prevalent in evangelicalism because I was raised in that. Same. Where you are taught that getting married and having kids is the be-all, end-all. You are yes. taught that you're not supposed to be happy. You're supposed to be married. It's supposed to be fruitful and multiply. Yes. Um, your wishes don't matter. And it's bullshit, first of all. What? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, it's a mess. It's we have a, a very heavy type of conditioning, and at least in the United States, and at least in the evangelical movement. I'm not saying every culture teaches that because they certainly fucking don't. Yep. Um, but it is this whole thing of well, you're supposed to be miserable, and that's been kind of the joke about the rise of the TikTok lesbian. Um, yes. is that all of a sudden all these women were like, wait a minute, wait a minute, there are other people that will actually think about my happiness. There are other people that right. will encourage me to do things. Hold up. <laughs> well, and not to get too Kinsey scale on the whole thing, but like I, I saw this one TikTok that was like aggressively, like I felt like, like I went back in time and felt called out that it's like straight women don't think about kissing their other female friends. And it's like, first of all, stop being loud to who I was when I was like 16 years old, when I was convinced that I was just, going through a strange phase that I have not grown out of in over 15 years. But yeah, like this idea that like, oh, if I could just like combine pieces of all these little um, other partners and make like one, you know, like a, like a transformer and make a good partner with, you know, the, the heart of this one and, you know, the dick of this one and the brain of this other one. Am I going to get in trouble if I say the penis more than meets the eye you're not gonna get in trouble but i'm gonna drive by your house and i'm gonna throw a pie at your door free pie free door pie yeah. like you're not gonna get in trouble per se but i am gonna drive by your house like in mario kart where everything just like slows down for a minute just launch a pie directly at the door. Uh, we're running away from the next theme, which is class and classism, which are things we don't like talking about. Yeah, this this book is very heavy on it. Um, all Ver Miller's is obviously considered to be lower class. Um, mm -hmm. He's part of an in, the industrialized class, and D.H. Lawrence was very familiar with that because his father was in coal, um, yes. which is a collier. Which I had to look that up anyway. Um, so I'm not Robert Collier. I know where your last name came from now. Um, but it, which if you think about it, if you say it out loud, it makes sense, but whatever. Okay. I was, it's one of those things that we would never have thought of until it's like, oh, right. Well, like Cooper is a barrel maker. 
thumbs yeah. up butcher self-explanatory um so a lot of this too is there's there's a great deal of anger between the classes and understandably yes. so you have men who are literally going into the mine and risking their life every single day for a pittance um well you have clifford up at the manor house being like Ooh, i'm gonna go play this or i'm gonna play uh betting games with my nurse and i'm gonna take her money which infuriates me in ways i don't want to talk about and he's like oh i gave her a raise so she could bet more i'm like you son of a bitch you have more money than 90 percent of the people in the county um please know that i'm sorry but in my mind when you said he was doing like woo i was like he was doing donuts in his wheelchair just upstairs just whipping doughies Dude, bro probably would. There's an entire sequence in this book where he's he's like mad because he's trying to take his wheelchair through this wooded area. Yes. And he's like, I'm just going to do this. And he's like got Mellers like on the ground looking at what's broken or trying to figure out what's broken. And he keeps going, Mr. Clifford, sir, I don't know anything about wheelchairs. I don't know anything about electric wheelchairs. I don't know how to help you. Like, please please, please let me and your wife push your chair for you. And he's just, like, I don't want this man pushing my wheelchair. And you're like... Just every boomer adult. I will say this. Yes. They, they kept making references uh, to, I think they said Shipton in this, Shipton Hall. But mm -hmm. there was Shipton Hall um, where Ann Lister lived. And yes, I am fascinated by the history of Ann Lister. If you don't know who that is, she is a woman who uh, ran a place called Shipton Hall. She was a lesbian in the late 1800s at a time where it was not okay to be a lesbian. Um, she wore all black continuously. She traveled through Europe. She had lots of girlfriends. Mm -hmm. um, she ended up technically marrying a girl when that was illegal. Um, by ba they did communion in church and they said their own vows. There, there wasn't like a legal signing of paperwork other than right. they wrote their own wills and shit. Um, but like she ran a bunch of coal farms and she was a dick. Um, she was she was fascinating and very fun to research and read about and inspiring with her diaries. But she was mm -hmm. a classist dick and told the people if they didn't want it, then she would just get other people to work the coal mines for her. Um, yeah. It's the same thing with Clifford. Clifford's like, why should I increase their pay? Why should I make conditions safer? I mean, if they don't like it, they can leave. And right. then you see like Mellers, who's actually been in war as well, who has, you know, been had horrible pneumonia, has lived mm -hmm. this life of like constant struggle. And he's like, does he have any concept of what we go through on a daily basis of like how we have to put food on the table? No. And no. sadly, this continues to this day. Well, and it becomes this like bigger issue. Like, so the thing that's been on my mind a lot um, outside of just continual existential screaming has been how the burden for climate change has been put on citizens rather than celebrities and companies like Taylor Swift's private jets. But Those she released... is not the only person who does no, that. She's not. And I I'm know, not. I know. But she, I'm just saying she's become kind of the hot button over the yeah. past few weeks just because it, it, part of it is misogyny. And I just want to make sure that that gets thrown out there. And I'm not trying to t defend Taylor Swift to the end of the world. I'm just saying 
look at look at the messages. We don't hear that about Microsoft. We don't hear that about Clinton. We don't hear that about um, the dude who runs Amazon, Jeff Bezos. We don't hear that about fucking Elon Musk. We only hear that right now about Taylor Swift. So, so we heard about it with Taylor Swift. So I'm not denying that it's misogynistic. That part of it is misogyny because we heard about it with Kim Kardashian as well. However, I am also still going to hold Taylor Swift accountable because she does fit into this very like white neoliberal idea of like, <laughs> I'm doing everything I can with like not helping. So like I will still, I'm a black woman in this black history month. I will still hold Taylor Swift to the fire. Not, I do not, I'm just saying, make not sure. denying that you know i'm not saying taylor's which is worse than jeff bezos or elon musk no but like yeah it's easy to talk about her right now because she's doing it um but and, and yes by no means is she the only person doing it but um that the onus for recycling and for lowering emissions is put on individuals mm-hmm. when the, i could recycle everything in my house and that's not going to make up for one of taylor's round trips it doesn't matter. And then again, on top of all of the other celebrities doing that, there's a really, really fun uh, map of private planes leaving the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. That's horrifying. So mm-hmm. it is this class tension that you see again and again. And I think, I don't know, I guess like if literature teachers focused on that part, because we love talking about class tension without doing anything. Because it's kind of hard to do stuff because we live in a militarized police state, um, that that would be a much more interesting draw. But yeah, like there is, and there is this whole like, oh, the the shame and the thrill of sleeping with someone who is below me. And it's just, it just feels gross and icky and, and like exploitative in a way that I don't think anyone would have thought about when this book was coming out, that everyone's just exploiting each other. It's just the exploitation express over here. And the, the funny thing is you see this a lot in, in thrillers, especially thrillers that take mm. place like modern thrillers where they set it later, or like in the 60s or the 20s or something like that. Anytime we've had like a major financial or political upheaval and it almost always features a young woman or young man of no means mm-hmm. who's thrown into a situation with a bunch of rich people who do not think about their comfort or anything. Mm-hmm. They're just like, get in here. Also, we demand all of these things from you. Um, and you kind of see that get turned on its head with like salt burn and shit, but like, it's, it's but a bad. very, huh? But bad. I liked salt burn, but okay. I have mental problems. We are, I am not shying away from that. Yes. Um, I, I send horrible memes all day long to to people to I am uh, one of those people. Yeah, to deal with the um, existential dread. But I think that brings us nicely to nature versus industrialization. That of course, um, our protagonist feels the most comfortable when she is just free fucking in the woods, which is the least romantic thing. Do not sleep with people in the forest. Or if you do, put a blanket down. A, like, a nice tarp. Just fucking in pine needles is painful and, and no fun for anyone. Yeah, it's just, it's not fun. And there's people out there. And if that does something for you, great. But like, I, so I've been getting a lot of those TikToks of like campers opening up their tents and there's like animals outside. And I just, I'm sorry. There's nothing that is going to make me want to not have sex faster than the threat of Bigfoot being outside of my like cabin door. 
I just have this image of like, hey guys, the campers are back and they just kind of sit around and like watch the shadows like a porno. Is that not what happens? I don't know. I don't know. I'm assuming that's what happens. Are black bears like robbing camps of like popcorn? (laughs) I guess like I'm assuming that that's what happens. Uh, But and the idea that the industrialized world is dirty but necessary, you know, again, it is not loss on anyone that the business that you know connie's husband has made his money in is coal which is physically environmentally and spiritually very dirty um and has a massive footprint ecologically and also physically like coal miners are sick and deal with various forms of cancer and it's hard physical backbreaking work and it's dangerous there are so many different coal disasters that are just existentially horrible to listen to um the aberfam disaster is one where it's just like oh, that the one in, in wales yes and it's just like oh no the worst just, about that is there were multiple warnings. There were all sorts of things that had been reported yes. and the owners just said, keep going. Mm-hmm. So it is like a physically and, you know, almost spiritually dirty business. Like there is almost no ethical way to produce coal. Um, we see that now with modern coal production in various countries that are in not the global West that these people are still considered to be second-class citizens, that it's still physically dirty work. And even the coal miners that exist in the U.S., you know, the proud people that they are, are still looked down upon when just maybe a hundred years ago they were considered to be what made America run again. And now it's this kind of, you know, denigrated, lower-status job that is still very important and vital to the, really, the existence of our country. What's interesting too about the the book as well is when there there are multiple parts where they're kind of just standing there and opining about, mm-hmm. I can see the industrialization coming, I can see the roads coming, I can see the force leaving. And Lawrence mm-hmm. had a lot of experience with that. Um, he lived near Nottingham and the Sherwood Forest. And so, yeah, that Sherwood Forest um, was slowly but surely disappearing for more homes and more businesses and things like that. So he actively would see that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something very similar to what we see every day. When I moved to where I live now, um, there were literally fields everywhere. And that was like seven years ago. And now mm-hmm. it is completely built up. It's all apartments. It is uh, gas stations, all sorts of stuff. And it's that that concept of we have to, you know, Mentally, we have to refine this area. We have to turn it into this. We have to tame the wildness. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of see that with Connie, too. It's this Clifford wants to tame that wildness. Um, Mellers doesn't. Mellers is like, no, stay here. Um, but also realizes that that need for taming or that thing is going to be something that causes her a lot of problems. Um, right. <clears throat> No, and we see these butting up against with, you know, deforestation and a lack of nature and our continual urbanization. Uh, Back home, a couple of kids got bit by coyotes. Okay, so 
I lived in an area where there was a lot of like back in California where there was a lot of growth. And so, yes, the coyotes got pushed out and mm-hmm. they were like, no, this is my place. I'm hanging out. So it was not uncommon to take your dog out for a walk at night. Be like, never mind going back in the house. Um, because you would just see a coyote and those fuckers are big. Um, cats get taken, stuff like that happens. But that's because we've gone into their habitat and taken it. And mm-hmm. been like, I'm going to build this apartment complex. Also, don't let your kids touch coyotes. Yeah, where where the what what the f are you doing getting close to a coyote, friend? It just reminds me of that that thing online. It was, I found this stray dog and gave him a bath. He's really bitey, and it was a coyote, and it was like, yeah, mm, no. Oh, uh, Joe Rogan is doing AIDS denialism. None of that is a surprise to me for Joe Rogan, but what? Did you know poppers cause AIDS? Throw some shit right now. Just yeet. Just Joe, why? There are literal problems going on in the world right now. Joe, why? That's something that makes me crazy. So there's this book that came out with incredible writable called doppelganger by naomi klein and mm-hmm. it was about how during covid people kept con- well actually starting before during um what was that occupy wall street people mm-hmm. kept mistaking her for naomi wolf and she's they'd be like do you hear what naomi klein said and she's like i never fucking said that and like would go back and realize that somebody had misappropriated a quote to her that was supposed to be naomi wolf and so it was going back and forth about all these crazy bat shit things that would come out and Klein would have to be like again not me Canadian liberal of Jewish ancestry up here not not in America not on any of the talk shows don't know what to tell you about Fox News it's not me but Mm -hmm. it was this whole concept of like I don't even know where my brain just went it just died it died um that's fun that happens a lot more now that I'm old uh yeah (laughs) but just this the whole concept of it is just like very frustrating and scary but moving on i don't know where i was going with that no it's okay my brain kind of died too when i read it which is why i brought it up because it's like joe why why are you like this i mean we've got a ridiculous amount of documentation about aids we do we don't have as much as we should have because reagan and thatcher both pushed it under the rug and made it a gay thing yes are we are we back to bashing Thatcher and Reagan? I mean, I'm not saying that that's a negative. I'm just making sure that that's, that's true. That's true. All right, we're gonna briefly talk about sex and sexuality because while this book does, in many ways, feel very open, it's like, oh, here's a woman expressing her sexual wants and needs. It is still very much written by a cishet man, and female sexuality is still very much written in a way that is still lustful, deceitful very misogynistic and frankly just it feels gross it feels gross right it does feel gross you're not wrong there are multiple parts where i'm like they had sex he didn't try to get her off 
did not give a, a crap about her pleasure. She's expected to just be like, this is amazing and everything's wonderful because we had sex. The obsession with becoming pregnant with his kid was weird. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, uh, Mr. Lawrence, do you have a breeding kink? Just just asking, just asking. Um, there were a lot of like little things that you're like, that does not ring true for a woman. Um, mm-hmm. But it does ring true for a man who's trying to put himself in a woman's place. Yes. And I'll probably suspect that, especially Tori and I had a harder time with this because we have read and made fun of erotic quote unquote fiction that is clearly written by a man trying to write a woman. Oh my God. One of the best ones. So there's a, an amazing girl on um, TikTok and I cannot think of her name. I'm a horrible person, but what she does is she reads these awful passages from romance novels written by people. Yes. And the best one was he was slurping her fallopian tubes like spaghetti. Bro, bro, unless you're a serial killer and you have carved into the human body, you are not you slurping not- anybody's fallopian tubes, my friend. Yeah, you should not physically be able to do that unless we're on like some Hannibal shit. Uh, but yeah, it's. The cervix is also not the G-spot, just so we're all clear. Also, don't that doesn't always work for people. No. That doesn't, that doesn't work for people. There's, there's this weird... So, you know, there's suspension of disbelief, right? And, like, things that you read in, like, fiction that you feel are hot just immediately are not hot if someone says it in real life. Yes. There's a lot of that. Like, if a man said to me, I'm going to fuck your cervix, I'm asking him politely to leave. Right. It's like, (laughs) the whole hill thing, we firmly but politely ask them to leave. Yeah, like, like, I'm asking you to go if that's a sentence that comes out of your mouth. No, that's not happening. But, yeah, there's so much of this that just, it feels... I know books like this get a lot of credit for being progressive, but again, in a modern context, they're just not. And before anyone rushes to say it was a different time, of course it was, but we aren't in that time, but we're still dealing with the consequences of things like this. There are still men that treat women in this way. There are still men that write women in this way. There are women that still write women like this because everything they grew up and modeled was this. And this well, has yes. an entire part where Miller's is just going off about women not being like strong, not being like many, many things that are deeply fucking insulting. And you're like, and you're still sleeping with this guy? Please. Right. I and mean, we did it in our 20s, but you know what I'm. Yeah, I mean, the, the pot kettle, hello. We've, we have both talked, we have both discussed the avatar of the man that we were, we were dating in our 20s. And talking about Lisa Frankenstein, but opposite. Yeah. Let's, oh my God. Could you imagine us building like, like an anti-golem, like the worst boy? I mean, I have one that's ready made. Do you want him? He's probably dead now, actually. You know what? I also have one that's ready made. Never mind. Why are ours just off the shelf? Uh, because what does that? 
we had deeply traumatic childhoods that we internalized in an area of evangelicalism that we clung to and then eventually figured out who the fuck we were later on in life. I was going to talk this up to fatherless behavior, but... (laughs) Fatherless behavior! Do you want (laughs) to tell the listeners what you're doing this month? Speaking of fatherless behavior? (laughs) I have to wait till May. So I so I think did you send it to me or did I send it to you? I sent it to you. <laughs> so Tori sent me this TikTok of this woman who has a cake that says like happy dead dad day. And as someone who has a dead dad, I am absolutely making myself a dead dad day cake. Oh my god, I didn't know I could have had cake all this time. We were talking about how our friends who still have both parents are very much like, that's so morbid. Why would you do that? But anybody who's in the dead parent club, which is not a club that anybody really wants to be in, but you kind of end up in. um, You're like, that's fucking hilarious because you've been through hell. You've been through all the shit and you've come out the other side and you're like, cake sounds great. Yeah, I would love a dead dad cake. That sounds phenomenal. I'm excited to think about what flavor to make. Like That's what I told you, we're just like, which flavor? <laughs> right. It's like, like anytime that you ask someone who also has a dead dad, they're like, this is the best idea. Because so here's the thing about celebrating holidays when you don't have a parent or parents is that everyone assumes that you don't celebrate holidays. Like, oh, well, you don't celebrate Father's Day. Well, I had a dad. He's in the ground, but I did physically have a dad. He's like, oh, you don't celebrate Mother's Day. I mean, I had women in my life. They weren't great, but I did have women in my, you know. So it's almost like this weird reconquista of like taking back, like, I'm going to do something that makes me happy on this day. Because usually every dead parent anniversary, you like sit in a corner, like in a, in a black shroud, and you are just barraged by sycophantic messages from people in your extended family who didn't fucking know that person saying they'd be so proud of you or I miss them so much. That got really personal. But but that's most of like, especially for my dad, it's like, oh, he'd be so proud of you. It's like, my dad died when I was 12. He didn't know me. Do not promise. Impressed I'm still alive. Right, like, do not assume that my father would be happy with the absolute drag queen demon that I am now. <laughs> do not assume that. My dad I died before I had a personality. Am I not? No, it's fabulous. It's like, my dad died before I developed a personality. He doesn't know. The best thing to ever happen to me was my dad dying. Because I'd still be living in a basement in North Texas somewhere if my dad was still alive. And you definitely would be in a cult. Yes. Believing that evolution didn't happen and that creation happened all at once. And still under the ministry, well, he's probably dead now, of Pastor Wayne Force. I feel like I need to look this up, but I'm also afraid. I think he's dead. Also, like our our adopted kid, not legally adopted, 
is in Denton and there's this amazing podcast called Was I in a Cult? And they were talking about the Deer Tribe. And I would just want to be like, do not go to any freaking person who call who is like a white dude from Detroit. This guy wasn't from Detroit. I'm just throwing that out there. Who decides mm -hmm. they want to do a Native American sweat lodge and doesn't actually talk to any people who are Native American or have any relation to this whatsoever. You mm -hmm. Absolutely. There are reasons certain things are done certain ways in certain protocols for certain beliefs. Just throwing that out there. Just because you're a billionaire from South Texas and you decide that you want to dig a pit in your garage and make it extra hot. Don't do that shit. This is, again, not what actually happened. But. So I googled my old pastor. So here's something from 2010. Pastor Brian will be teaching this class that is literally called, I shit you not, Arsenal Weapons of Warfare. This is a church. This is a church. Pastor Brian will be teaching this class along with guest speakers like Reverend Skeeter Pooch <laughs> and Pastor Wayforce. Somebody lost the name lottery. <laughs> and if Skeeter, if Skeeter Pooch isn't my next D&D &D character, I don't know what else will be. Now I feel like I need to go create a new Baldur's Gate character and just throw <laughs> Skeeter Pooch Paladin. Skeeter Pooch, the worst fucking cleric to ever exist. But yeah, we still deal with the echoes of all of this, you know, as we just uncovered our, you know, evangelical trauma, that we still deal with the echoes of books like this, that we are still, that there's, you know, a lot of really negative programming that women are taught because of things like this, that, you know, our sex drive is this immoral, you know, dirty, disgusting thing that we need to deal with and that only a man can satisfy you. And only if that man is white and is quote unquote of means. And if you are of color, then what you do is dirty and animalistic because we still deal with that stereotype to this day um there was a reddit am i the asshole uh meme of a guy a white guy who bought his black girlfriend a little singing gorilla that sang jungle love and he didn't understand why his black girlfriend was upset i mean you can see it on the cover of 90 percent of the pornos that come out too yeah like and he and that he took to Reddit. It's like I don't know what I did wrong, and just everyone writes like you don't you you physically, you do not. You you do not know what you did wrong at all. That's the problem. But there is some very frank discussion of female sexuality. It's not good, but it is there, and we have to give it credit. Um, there is some very frank discussions of sex. It's not good, but it is there. So you have to give it and credit. Body and body parts. Part where they're weaving flowers through their genital hair. I must have blocked that from my memory because that's just. That's probably good. That's probably good because I was reading when they were going off about John Thomas and Lady Jane and like, 
I'm going to put this particular flower here. And like, there were things that I was like, okay, I would accept this as like a book talk thing, but that's also because we make fun of it all the time. Um, and again, as somebody who writes this kind of shit all the time, I understand that this is the pot calling the kettle black a lot. <laughs> yeah, like, I mean, smut writer to smut writer, we can lampoon it because we've been there. Like, it's, yeah, I must have blocked that from my memory. The way that I wish that I could block that one TikTok of the woman who made cinnamon rolls out of her yeast infection. Whoa! What the actual fuck, dude? Yeah, that, that was the thing. Person? No. If I have to go in raw with that, you do too. I will not suffer alone. That has been on my TikTok more than the questionable men that I send you on a regular basis. I will tell you, though, if you drink homemade mead, always make sure that that person is not a filthy hippie. Yes. <laughs> and the reason I say this is if you are using, like, the industrial yeast, good for you. If you're using your be beard or vagina yeast, please fuck off entirely and leave me alone. I am not drinking that shit. I don't want that in my body. We've run away from the book and we've made oh, it worse. 100%. Do you want um, me to tell you more about D.H. Lawrence? Yes, let's do that before we are here all day just whinging. <laughs> and here's the thing. I didn't hate this book. I didn't love it, but I didn't hate it. Um, it drags a lot. But... So David Herbert Lawrence, who I understand why you would go by D.H., uh, was born September 11th, 1885. He was a Virgo. Because I feel like I have to say that now. Yes. Um, he was the fourth kid of John Lawrence, a minor, a.k.a. a collier, and a former pupil teacher named Lydia Bursdale. Um, his mom ended up, like, up having to leave and go work like in industrial stuff because her family needed the money. But um, D.H. grew up in Eastwood, Nottinghamshire, which was not surprisingly a mining town. His birthplace mm -hmm. is now a museum. So if you ever want to go see that, evidently it's on a street called Victoria Street. When he was a kid, he spent a lot of time in what was left of Sherwood Forest and had appreciation for nature, which we talked a little bit about. Uh, he attended Bovo's Board School, which has now had a name change, thank God, uh, was the first local student to win a county council scholarship to Nottingham High School, which was nearby. Um, he worked as a junior clerk at Haywood Surgical Appliances, but he got horrible pneumonia. Interestingly enough, how many times does Oliver Mellors mention his weakness due to pneumonia um yes. but he got and it ruined what was left of his career there so he's like bailed out uh while he was healing from pneumonia he went to be near hag's farm um and that's where the chambers family lived including a woman named jesse chambers who would inspire a lot mm -hmm. of his female characters they both loved books they developed an intellectual relationship um from what we understand they also probably had a very short physical relationship too mm -hmm. um he ended up getting his teaching certificate of, from University College Nottingham, and he was working on poems and short stories while he was teaching. He won an award at the end of 1907 for a short story competition in the Nottinghamshire Guardian, and that was the first time a wider audience had really ever paid attention to his writing, because his writing was kind of just something he did. And he right. was like, oh, shit, I can do stuff with this? Um, in 1908, he left for London, and he was teaching at Davidson Road School in Croydon. Croydon is near London. Mm -hmm. um, his... Fred, well, the city of London. It's a whole thing, you guys. I'm not going into it. Yes. In 1908, he, um, I'm sorry, we already, his friend Jesse Chambers submitted a lot of his writing to a man named Ford Maddox Ford of the English Review. And he ended up getting a story published in the magazine um, called Odor of Chrysanthemums. 
And Fox ended up telling other editors, hey, this kid is pretty good. You should get him to submit more work. So he continued to teach for about another year, but he started taking his writing more seriously. Um, mm -hmm. In 1910, he published his first novel. It was called The White Peacock. Um, he was getting his, oh, sorry, it was not published yet, but it was when they were getting all the final proofs out for The White Peacock. Unfortunately, around that same time, his mom died from cancer and he was super close to his mom. So his grief became a very big deal. And he would use that in Sons and Lovers as a lot of, because Sons and Lovers is, is pretty autobiographical. Mm -hmm. um, Unfortunately, in Sons and Lovers, he also used his relationship with Jesse Chambers as a plot point. She felt super betrayed and under their friendship. They never talked again after the book was published. So, yeah. Um, in 1911, he met someone who actually read books for a publisher named Edward Garnett. And Garnett acted as a mentor to him and they became close friends. And he also became friends with his, his uh, son, David. And that was super helpful for him because... Garnet would go through and be like, you got to get rid of this. You got to add this in. This is what publishers are looking for. Um, this is how you can make this more marketable, like that kind of stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So at one point in time, a colleague from his teaching days, Helen Court, gave him super intimate diaries she had written about an unhappy love affair. And he used them as the basis of a second book called The Trespasser. Um, so he didn't learn his lesson the first time. Or not the first time, but you know, he didn't learn his lesson. He got yeah, no lessons were learned. He got pneumonia again, officially abandoned teaching, and was a full time writer. Um, he was engaged to another childhood friend for a while, but he broke off the engagement and he met a woman named Frida Weekly, who was very mm -hmm. married. Um, she was married to a former modern languages professor named Ernest. They had three kids. Oops. Uh, she and uh, D.H. Lawrence like bailed out on England and ran off to, at that point in time, Metz was in Germany um, at her parents' house. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, this was right around when things were getting ready to pop off in Europe. And Lawrence was arrested and accused of being a British spy in Germany. Um, mm -hmm. His future father-in-law got him out of the charge, which mentally I can just picture this whole thing of being like, does this guy really look like he could spy? I don't even know what my daughter's doing with him. Like, that's mentally. Um, they left and... Um, to live south of Munich just because they were like, well, we can't stay here. Mm -hmm. uh, he started writing plays about his um, his family's life in mining, including one called Daughter-in-Law, but it was written in his childhood dialect. So it was very hard to understand. The play was not performed or published while he was alive. Um, D.H. and Frida walked across the Alps, what the fuck, and recorded this trip as they went to Italy as a travel book. He finished Sons and Lovers eventually in Italy. His friend Edward Garnett cut 100 pages from the book because he was like, "Not nah, get rid of this." Uh, he wrote, or D.H. wrote *The Rainbow* and a book called *Women in Love*, and both were considered super controversial and banned on publication. Mm -hmm. um, the reason *The Rainbow* was banned is because it had lesbianism in it. Had lesbian Gasp. Sex. Gasp! And I was cracking up because I'm like, "Bro, wrote lesbian sex." Um, it's Lawrence developed a strong friendship with a Cornish farmer named William Henry. What is it? Hawking? I'm like, need to clean my screen. Anyway, uh, <laughs> some scholars think that this was a romantic relationship. Uh, Lawrence didn't actually leave any clues on the subject, but his, uh, his girl Frida was like, oh yeah, it was at least sexual. I think he was bi-curious. Like, she wrote that down. Um, I don't think she used the phrase bi-curious, but that was what it was. It boiled down to. Um, yeah. So Frida finally gets a divorce from Ernest Weekly. Um, Lawrence and Frida get legally married on July, um, 
1914. He was working with a ton of London intellectuals at the time, including T.S. Eliot and Ezra Pound. Uh, <laughs> he gets in trouble again because of Frida's German parents. And uh, D.H. Lawrence not even trying to hide the fact that he hated British militarism. Mm -hmm. So they get accused of spying and signaling German submarines off the coast of Cornwall. And he's forced to leave with three days notice after constant harassment from local authorities. They're broke. They have nothing. So they go from address to address. He almost dies of the flu. Um, he called this time in his life the savage pilgrimage. Okay. Um, I'm like, okay, buddy. They go to Australia, New Zealand, and eventually they ended up in the United States in 1922. What's really interesting is how many people went to fucking Taos, New Mexico, because didn't Huxley go to Taos as well? Several. Yeah. Um, he and his friends are like, you know what? We're going to do the Taos thing and we're going to form a utopian group. Mm -hmm. It's full of bohemians. They bought a place called Kiowa Ranch and turned it into the D.H. Lawrence Ranch. Um, and then he and Frida also spent tons of time in New Mexico and Oaxaca and all over Mexico. And, oh, yeah, he did meet Aldous Huxley in New Mexico. I'm not falsely thinking. Okay, so I need you to know that I'm also back on my my bullshit about MK Ultra. So I'm reading a book called Acid. And I'm like, have you ever left? I went on a, a hiatus where I was like, I cannot handle reading anything else about this. I can't read anything more about Delos or Sidney Gottlieb or Stanley or any of this. I can't do it. And then I was like, no, I have to understand. So he, um, he briefly returns to England at the end of 1923 and considers it a major failure. And he's like, nah, nah, I'm retiring to Taos full time. Yeah. In 1925, he develops malaria and tuberculosis while visiting Mexico. He gets dangerously ill, especially because he's had this history of pneumonia. Mm -hmm. And the illness would make it difficult for him to travel for the rest of his life. Uh, they leave Taos. They go to a villa in northern Italy. And it's here he writes different versions of what would become Lady Chatterley's lover. He initially published it in private editions in Florence and Paris. So there were full editions, but they were privately published. Mm -hmm. Um Around this time, he develops this. I have a whole thing on the obscenity trial, so don't worry, we're not skipping it. No, we're um, not. developed a huge love for oil painting. Um, mm -hmm. He did enough to have a show in London, which was raided in 1929, and many of his paintings were confiscated, including one uh, that was basically, I think it was called The Miners, and it had like three naked men, but they were all minors. And it wasn't sexual, but they're like, that's sexual. <laughs> like, it was the whole thing. Um, in the meantime, he kept writing as well as trying to defend his last novel while it was being banned for obscenity, Lady Chatterley's mm -hmm. Lover. He left a sanatorium and passed away March 2nd, 1930 from complications of tuberculosis. So, mm -hmm. them lungs, man. Yep. So many of our authors die of tuberculosis. Um, tuberculosis is a absolutely terrifying condition and very, very easily spread. Um, also, writers live in conditions that make it easy to get upper respiratory illnesses like that. Um, so, yeah, it happens to a lot. Also, probably that time in the sanatorium didn't help because tuberculosis is very contagious. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, it's it's funny because a lot of writers die of tuberculosis. And it's like, 
Yeah, because they keep doing things that make it easy to get tuberculosis. <laughs> so his wife had an elaborate headstone carved with the image of a phoenix. Mm -hmm. uh, it was pretty well known by this point, and, and it's assumed that D.H. Lawrence knew as well that she was sleeping with their friend, Angelo Vogley. Um, mm -hmm. They ended up getting married after Lawrence died, um, but he arranged on Frida's behalf to have Lawrence's body exhumed um, and cremated in 1935. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, when he gets ready to come back over to bring the ashes, he finds that it's going to cost more to pay taxes on the ashes than to actually just bring back the fucking urn. So he spreads mm -hmm. the ashes in the Mediterranean, which he they all kind of assumed D.H. Lawrence would have hated, would not have hated. Um, and they filled the urn with dust and earth, and then they interned it in a concrete block chapel in the mountains of New Mexico, um, yes. which you can still see today. And I attached um, a video on this because there's an Ask the Mortician video about where his body is. And his grave has this like really, really, there's a memorial stone in England that is attached to him. And of course it says homo sum, which is an ancient Roman like proverb that basically says, I am human, nothing human is alien to me. So he was, he reminds me of every boy that I probably slept with when I was in high school, a pseudo-intellectual. So a very super censored and abridged version. So we, we get into now the, uh, the obscenity mm -hmm. trial. Um, the super abridged version was published by Alfred A. Knopfress in 1928 in the US. Mm -hmm. The first full edition was released posthumously um, in a very limited run of a thousand prints by Giuseppe Orioli. Uh, Penguin finally publishes the full book uncensored in the UK in 1960. Mm -hmm. um, and the book ends up becoming a political tool because of something that had just been passed in 1959 called the Obscene Publications Act of 1959. So this was their way to test the obscenity law. Right. Um, the publishers, so this was Penguin um, at the time, they had to prove that every single word in the book was necessary, including cunt and fuck. Yes. Uh, I don't think it went the way that politically they thought it was going to go because the publisher was found not guilty on November 2nd in 1960. And this mm -hmm. actually led to more freedom in publishing in the UK rather than less freedom. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I love that Neil Florence was still causing controversy like way after he was dead. As it should be. Like, oh. Like I said, it's not a terrible book. It's not an amazing book. It's not my favorite thing. I would read more D.H. Lawrence, but I don't think I would reread this. Yeah, it's uh, serviceable. It's fine. It, yeah, it's definitely not the worst thing that we've had to read for this show. I don't, I mean, it's also not oh, the Jonathan best. Livingston Siegel was the worst thing we've ever had to read for this that show. That was the worst thing we've had to read. I mean, Jonathan Livingston's that, that book. You're so mad about that analog bird. I'm still mad about that fucking bird. He's doing his best. He's just a special bird. A special, special genius bird. Yeah, he's a special genius bird. <laughs> who has a unique perspective on life. And not stealing french fries from children. 
No, steal the French fries from the children. They deserve it. Uh, but I think, yeah, as we mentioned, neither of us had to read this in school because there's a very, very low chance that either of us would have read this in school because of all of the scandal around it. And even though I'm pretty sure if I did read this when I was in school, uh, I was definitely writing fan fiction that was harder than this by 14. So probably wouldn't have done much for me. My fan fiction was so freaking innocent. I go back and I nope. read stuff and I go, Oh, baby doll, that's not how that works at all. I was the exact opposite. Um, and please do not dig up my fan fiction from when I was 14. Just kidding. You can't dig it up because I still have all of it. And it will I go have in my a casket. Bunch of notebooks that I recovered from my mom's house right before they moved to Texas. Yep. And, um, they were very enlightening and also depressing. I maintain that, um, I remember saying this when we were talking about Grendel, but it's like, I love that, especially now that like, I'm very frank with my aunts about what was going on. And it's like, I don't know how you guys didn't see all of this coming. I was not subtle in any way. There's, I, I do not understand that whole like generation. Like I just didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't put it together. I didn't know you'd turn out like this. Like, really, you had no idea on earth, not a single clue. Nothing was apparent to you. Really? Not all the Just books like, that I was, yes. You think of that thing in the good place. We got the four clues you sent us. Oh, we left you over 1200, but okay. Yeah. It's like, really, you guys had no idea. None? Okay. Uh, Tori, what are we reading next? Uh, uh, I had forgotten, even though I was on the suggestion. <laughs> Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. We're going back to our roots. Books that kids actually have to read in school. I'm Do not I excited about it. I feel like I have to find that picture of Margaret Atwood attempting to burn it with a flamethrower when they made that special edition. Yeah, we have to. We have no choice. Um... But it'll be fun to talk about book bans again. Hey, we that never stop in Texas. <laughs> yeah, that thing that keeps happening. Like, don't fucking read it then. <sighs> it's not for you. Don't read it. Like, it's literally not for you. No one cares. Just leave people alone. Let people live. Uh... You can find us over most of social media, except for Twitter, where Amanda has continually hidden from. Yeah. Twitter's not. Yeah. But if you want us to join threads, let us know. That one looks pretty chill. We are, it's probably the best place to go is unfortunatelyrequiredreading.com, just because that's where you can find most of the stuff, including Correct. our Redbubbles. Yes. So if you need a sticker that says White Tears, which is still our best-selling sticker. Or if, or if I finally sit down and make a fatherless behavior sticker. <laughs> I feel if like we need one at this stage. For us, or you want to tell us a funny story, or make a suggestion mm -hmm. for a book, you can email us at unfortunatelyrequiredreading at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. Eventually we'll check our email. One of us will check our email eventually. Uh, this is the part of the show where we thank our supporters. Uh, thank you for keeping the lights on, both metaphorically and physically. 
uh, we greatly appreciate it. And you can do so at podcasters.spotify.com slash unfortunately required reading. And there is a button there to support the show. Uh, we greatly appreciate it. And it helps us uh, keep everything going. Uh, Dece- December? February? Amanda doesn't know what time is anymore because she's had rosé. Uh, February is an interesting month for a lot of people. Uh, be kind. Listen. Uh, there's a lot going on in the world, so stay involved to the level that you feel comfortable. Because if you ingest all of it, um, you'll go insane. It's it's there's a lot going on in the world right now, but um, go read a book. Yeah, we'll see you in the next one. Bye.